I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome again. It's the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Professor Steve Keen is with me as we look at robots. They're taking over the joint. And what can we do about it? Well, Amazon has said with their planned takeover of Whole Foods in the United States, a deal which is worth $13.5 billion for a chain of more than 430 stores. Uh, and of course, with uh, Amazon's reputation for automating as much as possible, uh, the packing and shipping of goods, uh, they've said that they uh, intend to uh, create efficiencies for Whole Foods as a company. Uh, Amazon turns over $135 billion a year. It employs 340,000 people. Now, that sounds like a lot, but the UK retail sector as a whole turns over £358 billion in revenue, which is about three and a half times as much as Amazon worldwide, but it employs 2.8 million people, more than eight times as many as Amazon. So in terms of efficiency in the use of people for their retail turnover, Amazon is more than twice as efficient as the broader retail sector, and it's improving all the time. In fact, a report in the Seattle Times last year said that there were about 45,000 Amazon robots working in 20 fulfillment centers, which was up 50% on the year before. No doubt they have more now. So are robots taking jobs? Well, they're certainly replacing humans and Amazon. So how do we manage the rise of the machines? Is that a problem? Well, Steve Keen is with us. I mean, even if it is a problem, I guess, Steve, there's not a lot we can do about it. I mean, is there, is there anything we can do, do you think? Well, <laughs> we can do the Luddite thing. I know there are people who say, look, you know, we've had previous periods where some technological change has wiped out all employment in a particular industry, agriculture being the obvious example. But we've gone from where back in uh, really ancient days, 70 percent of the workforce worked in agriculture, often whether they wanted to or not, uh, down to the stage where it was the 30 percent in the late late 1800s. And by now it's down to about three or four percent. We're producing as much food and all those people have moved across to manufacturing, first of all, and then services. So the usual line is, oh, we'll find something else. Something else where we can't possibly predict will come forward and take up all that unskilled labour. And I think that is a load of bollocks. Right. But if we had time on our hands, we'd find something to do, wouldn't we? Well, this is the thing. We'll have time in our hands, but time in your hands without money in your pocket doesn't actually work out to all that good a lifestyle. Mm. And nor does it work out as something that actually maintains the mass market, which is what has really been the defining feature of capitalism in the 20th century. It became a mass market. When you go back to the days of of, uh, the early early 1800s and the evolution of capitalism from the previous feudal system, uh, the the living conditions of the mass of people were absolutely appalling. And in fact, there's a really good argument uh, covered pretty well by a wonderful book called uh, The Making of the English Working Class, that the standard of living of the average uh, feudal peasant was substantially higher than the standard of living of the average industrial worker in the early period of the uh, of the uh, the uh, 19th century, and what we really had was a whole series of period of uh, people uh, struggling for for wage uh, increases in wages, 
and uh, and also the colonial factor as well at the same time, which improved the standard of the English working class rather rather substantially. But there was a period where you certainly weren't selling to a mass market. You were selling to a very tiny market. It was back in the days of the, what was it called, the tale of two cities? Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing is, what we could actually end up back in is another tale of two cities. Only these days we'd call it the Hunger Games. <laughs> so I, uh, I think it's a, it is a serious issue because. But is it, we, is, uh, is, is it automation that's driving it? Because we've, I mean, even conventional economists now are starting to recognise that underemployment is a problem. We, we, we've seen around the world that wages aren't picking up. It might have taken a while for people to cotton onto it, but now they're starting to say, "Oh well, yeah, actually, even though we've got full employment, we've got high underemployment." So is is automation doing that? Is that is that the root cause of it? Do you think? It's not the only cause. This is one little thing which which was an unexpected side effect of the model I built of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis back in the uh, in the early nineties. Was that there was even even though in my model I had workers not borrowing money at all, so all the borrowing was done by firms and all the borrowing was done to build factories rather than speculation on land or or um, or share prices. As we know, a lot of that borrowed money has gone into. Even with those features the impact of rising debt was falling wages share. Mm. And that's actually what's turned up in the data as well. So uh, partly the decline in workers' wages has come out of the rise in private debt. And if we could work out a way of reducing the private debt, we'd reverse that particular causal factor. But another part, in my opinion, inevitably, is the impact of automation. Because this time round, with the growth of robots, it's replacing the one thing you need unskilled labour for that you can't otherwise do. And this is what we, you know, this is why you, you couldn't produce Model T Fords without unskilled labour. You had a you had a machine line. You had the old Bell production line uh, that had to have uh, creatures, whatever you might call them, which could grab hold of a, of, a, of a nut, put it into a hole, rotate, and pass it on to the next creature, who would then do the same job mechanically all day down the line. Uh, that was impossible with mach- with machinery in the in the nineteen twenties. It is quite possible with machinery in the twenty twenties. Yeah, absolutely. And it look and it looks like Amazon. You know, they're not uh, putting their money into speculative investments. They're putting money into uh, a, a, an efficiency drive. It seems so. You know, and and you can't complain about that, can you? I mean, if you're an Amazon shareholder, you'd be saying. This is great. They are doing the job so much better. So, um, you know, you, it, it's hard to argue against a company that is saying we want to drive efficiency. So you, yeah, can't, you it, can't stop them doing that. You can't stop them. And, and in fact, you've got to say, well, actually, what, what are they actually doing? Let's, let's, let's cut it down to the, 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 the brass tax, what's actually going on here. And the brass tax are that um, you can get machines. The, the, the reason machines are desirable for capitalists, is often put across as machines, don't go on strike, they wait for 24 hours a day, yada, yada, yada. The real reason machines have appeal over, over labour is that a worker can only put in about 2,000 calories of unskilled labour per day. Mm. If you can work out a way to automate that process, whatever the worker is doing, then you replace the maximum limit on a human body of about 2,000, I mean, maybe 3,000 if you really push it, calories of en- energy expended a day into tens of thousands of calories, hundreds of thousands, millions of calories, depending upon the particular industry you're looking at. So you can get much, much more productivity. And what you're doing is actually replacing the the slow absorption of energy that workers do by eating food, which is an, you know which is produced by very recent solar radiation, you're replacing that with stored energy from fossil fuels, 
nuclear power, if you get to that stage, maybe eventually, ultimately, on an industrial scale, solar power as well, you can just get far more work done by a machine than you can by a labourer. Right. And, and they can, and, and on, on top of all of that, they could just do stuff that we can't do. So, I mean, the, uh, they can do it faster. Uh, they can do it in dangerous conditions. I mean, there's, uh, they have more flexibility. And, but there's one thing they can't do, mate. There's one thing they can't do. What's that? They can't. They can't shop. do economics. They can't. No, they can't shop. No, they can't. They can't, well, they, 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 they can't shop. <laughs> that's true. Someone's got to spend they, the money. That's a very. That's a very good point. But <laughs> but we're taking all that money away uh, because robots are doing all the work, and so hence that's where we get into, for example, Benoit Hamon, the uh, who was running for the uh, for the French presidency. Uh, we won't hear anything of him again, I suspect. But he had a few policies on this, including. Attacks on robots. He's not the uh, uh, the only one who suggested this. In fact, Bill Gates has even suggested attacks on robots. Uh, I'm not quite sure how practical that is. I don't know how you define a robot. Uh, but Benoit Hamon also talked about a universal basic income, which we've talked about, and and a 32 hour working week as well. In other words, if we're going to work less, let's make sure everyone works less. Could 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 any of that help? I think the one, the one thing that I come down to think is we have to only have to have a universal basic income. Uh, and again, I bring it back to the whole question of of energy. And what we're actually doing in producing output is taking energy and producing useful work out of it. Initially, that took uh, just almost sheer labour back in the slave days. Uh, it then took labour with a bit of machinery in the feudal period. It took labour with a lot of machinery and we started to industrialise everything. At some point, it'll take machinery and almost no labour. So we have to say, what sort of human society do we want to have? And if the answer is you, you're quite happy to have a bunch of machines producing output uh, for the wealthy and leaving out the, the mass of people, you literally end up in what we call the Hunger Games. So I must actually watch one of those in my entire movies all the way through. I, I find the whole thing, they annoy the hell out of me. But that sort of dystopian future is clearly what we're going to go to if we don't actually solve the distribution problem that comes with the production solution that a robots offer us. But the idea of a universal basic income, because robots are doing everything, for you that would be great because you'd uh, you'd get lost in your own mind and uh, make all sorts of wonderful discoveries. For a lot of people, they'd just sit on their fat asses and watch TV all day, and that's not good for the economy, is it? I mean, they're spending money, I guess, but... Uh, it, it's not good for mankind. Now, this is one of the real challenges we face because as a species, we've always got a sense of self-worth out of what we do for other people. And that's what's made us uh, a successful species, not, the, not com competition, which has been the focus of mainstream economic theory, but really a sense of cooperation because, you know, you and I in a competition against a lion aren't going to do very well. In fact, I tweeted a fairly funny example of that. Uh, well, funny to watch. I mean, the person who was uh, who just shot another lion um, found herself being ambushed by a second lion and the, and we I think the camera was discovered and there would have been two corpses lying nearby. Um, but if we didn't cooperate, there's no way we could have outcompeted the that particular dominant predator off the off the face of the Serengeti. But com competitively, we, we get together, we cooperate, we do these things. And we also develop skills, which we then share in a, in a, in a gift-making uh, gift way. Fundamentally, human society began as a gift society, not as a, not as a barter society. That's just an economic myth from, uh, from Adam Smith. So if you get to the stage where nobody actually needs to work to give gifts to each other, 
then it's a real dilemma because we've spent two centuries or more than two centuries harnessing that essential nature of humanity and turning it over to the basis of the production system in which we live. We could go back to the days when we all try to be, you know, artists, um, writers, do sculpture, make carpentry, etc., etc. But it's a, it's, it's almost going to cause schizophrenia in a population that has been used to going off to working in a, in a factory or working in an office all, all the time. But, so uh, it is a real challenge. But isn't I think po- we're seeing isn't, that. Up. Isn't that problem, though? That, I mean, it's not going to be the case that we will never need people at all and that there will be some people that we do depend on to work and uh, and they're going to be a bit miffed if they're the ones working and everybody else is pursuing what they'd love to do. The only really the only, only type of work that really remains uh, is stuff which is incredibly difficult to automate and that's that's you know, the, the field of that is, is shrinking shrinking over time or in actually designing automation and uh, and even in that field i mean a lot of computer programming now is starting to be ai de- developed so uh, you get code that works better than any code written by a human and nobody knows how it works um uh, Somebody has to try to work out how it works to keep that particular process going. So there are, but you end up with only a very, very tiny fraction that are actually going to be necessary for production. Now that's fine in terms of, in, in one sense, in terms of you know uh, generating the bounty out of a, a tiny level of input. But it leaves a two, two two major dangers. One, people with nothing to do and time on their hands, so they don't, that is very counterproductive and two uh, if you don't actually distribute the well the production bounty that can be generated then you have the hunger games outcome so we, we really do face major challenges as a species but there is one that'll uh, uh, catch in that and that's that a lot of us are going to be finding ourselves having to work to, gener- to generate energy in the very near future and unless our um, technology for energy mining gets more efficient Right. So we're all going to work in the energy industry to try and um, keep these robots running to provide the lifestyle. No, 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 not so much that. It's a, we, we, we have to make the transition from fossil fuel-based energy to, um, to renewable energy. And the fact that Tony Abbott and people like that believe otherwise is almost a proof that, 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 that the proposition is true. So, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll go with that. But look, let's before we get to that utopia, I guess, and it, it, I mean, yeah. to a lot of people, it would seem like a utopia that, you know, computers are doing, uh, automation is doing all the hard work for us, and that allows us to pursue uh, our interests in a, in a far more benevolent society, which is not so dog-eat-dog. Sounds like mm. a, a, a blissful world, this, this picture you paint for us, Steve. But before we it's get there... It's not blissful, it won't blissful getting there though, uh, that, that was going to be my point how do we get there yeah. so, uh, so that's where we yeah, start to, that's where we start to look at these interim measures so for example you know bill and bill gates was one of those who suggested a tax on robots because if you employ somebody they pay taxes and they pay social security you replace them with a robot that robot pays nothing the display in fact the displaced person is claiming the social security payment so uh, all your budget, uh, your government budget accounting goes goes out the window. It's a it's a loss all around. It's a it's it's a fairly ma- messy transfer for us to get there, isn't it? I, I don't think it'll work. I mean, one of the things about taxes is they're easily evaded, as we know from all the global arguments over tax havens and things of that nature. That's why I prefer the idea of a universal basic income and saying we give everybody sufficient to have a better than subsistence standard of living. But if you want to get better again, then you have to do some innovation and produce something people are willing to pay part of their more than subsistence salaries from to support. 
because you want to maintain two things. You want to maintain the mass market that's made capitalism the positive social force that it has been, but you also want to maintain innovation. You don't want to stifle the, the other side of capitalism, which is people deciding to invent something new either because A, they have time in their hands and money in their pockets, or B, they have um, no money, but they have this vision of making a fortune out of some innovation. So you, you want to capture both of those. But right. can the you, political process of getting there is going to be dead, deadly. Well, and can you actually do that? So, for example, one in 10 people work and those uh, one in 10 people take their own universal basic income. But with the extra work that they create, they've also got to pay the universal basic income for the uh, for the other nine. So, you know, then you get into, in effect, what is a horrendous level of taxation that they're going to have to pay? Don't no, you? To- forget, ta- forget taxation again under the UBI. And by the way, we're already in that world. This is one thing people are only slowly consciousness of dawning of this, but probably only about 10% of the workforce actually does productive labour right now. Yeah, I can 90% believe that. 90% of us are caught up in what David Graeber beautifully t- titled bullshit jobs. <laughs> Lengthy <laughs> meetings yeah. to discuss when's the next meeting going to be, all that sort of stuff, absolutely. But who's going who's to pay for that, U- as you're now calling it, well, the, well, U- no, we, the UBI? Where's that, where's that money you, coming from? This is the thing. It's not where the money comes from. It's having the f- physical productive capacity in the first place. And then you try to find some way to distribute that through the monetary system. Because the money itself, and this is you know, my, one of my other hammering points, money is double entry bookkeeping. Mm. Money is an accounting exercise. To say you run out of money is saying you run out of capacity to type numbers into a computer spreadsheet or write numbers on a piece of, on a, on a, on a, on a piece of paper ledger. So... We're never going to run out of money. We're going to have, have trouble distributing the money. We're going to have trouble allocate, generating enough uh, labour to give everybody not enough labour, enough enough work. And I mean that in the genuine energy sense, rather than just uh, the people working, uh, to actually give everybody a, a physically a bearable standard of living. But the money side of it is. It, it, we, it, it's the it's how we manage the money rather than whether it can be produced or not. Right, but so, it, but to get there before we get to that stage, though, I mean, if if nothing was done at all, don't we go into the uh, sort of almost a feudal system in that the people who own those robots, uh, who are making all of the wealth in in the, in in society. Uh, are you know sort of I I I, I guess they're, they're making all the money, but they still rely on people buying stuff. And if no one's got any money, uh, then no one's going to no one's going to buy what they're making. This, this is what Marx called the contradiction of capitalism, and uh, it's one of those classic ones because you actually rely upon a mass market at the moment to actually to actually manifest the physical your your exorbitant share of the physical surplus produced by the economy you need other people to be buying it off you Mm. and if you don't give them an income in the first place they're not buying it off you and you fall into a depression so it's it's one of those classic cases where uh, with Mark, I think the way Marx put it, I've got to remember that it's ages since I've read uh, Dear Old Carl, but he had an expression that said, where the, where, the mean, where the mode of production gets in the way of the means of production. And I think that's actually probably, it's more apt now than any time that Marx ever wrote it, uh, because the mode of production involves wage labour, generating uh, an income for the workers generating a profit for the capitalists and then generating surplus commodities. So it's, I mean, it'd be more output than input and using that output, uh, turning that output into profit by selling it to a mass market. Now, if you take away the mass market, and that's what's going to happen with robotization and uh, computer AI work as well, you take away the mass market, 
it actually gets in the way of the capacity of the system to produce. Right. And that's the dilemma we're facing right now. And our ideology, as usual, is going to be the major obstacle we face in getting through it. So in, in 25 years' time, where Amazon is the only company in the world and we have to buy from Amazon because Amazon makes everything, they own all the robots, Amazon will be in the position where they have to say, right, well, we have to start issuing this universal basic income to people because they're our shoppers. I mean, that's that, that, in, a, in, a, in a nutshell, forgetting about any government in, in all of this, if they uh-huh. did become the only company in the world, they would have to dish out money to try and sell stuff. Yeah, that, that's and that's one of the contradictions. Mind you, at the same time, Amazon has has made its fortune by never declaring a profit. The way that uh, they've managed to take over other sections of retail is that they underprice compared to the competition because they they sell almost well, not quite below cost, but at cost. Therefore, don't declare a profit. And the way that Amazon shareholders make money is that as they take over more and more of the retail trade, their share price rises and people then sell the shares. And if they face any capital, any tax at all, it's only capital gains tax, which is half what they'd pay as income tax. So there's been a a clever financial engineering uh, force behind Amazon as well as the as the uh, computerization. That's that's just a good old fashioned land grab, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's certainly it's it's. It, it's yeah, it's it's taking over the competition by out, underpricing them out of existence, and then bang, you've got the monopoly, so you can put the prices back up again. But in fact, Amazon's kept on doing it. They've rather than stopping at a particular point, they're keeping on going by continuing not to not declaring a profit, continuing uh, share appreciation as the way that it's beneficial for, for Amazon shareholders to do that, and they then avoid the taxation because capital gains tax is either non-existent or in many countries like Australia, for example, it's half the rate of income tax. Um, so that itself is setting itself up for a trap. If they continue being successful, they're undermining other capitalists by not declaring a profit. So the other thing that uh, Benoit Hamon suggested, uh, other than the tax on robots and the universal basic income, I mean, you, you agree on on that point and say that's all we need. He also said limiting the working week, a thirty-two hour working week, as a sort of as an interim measure. But I mean, that's a bit that I I can't see the sense in that. I guess if you've got the UBI, you don't really need that. But also, what's what's a what's a working week anyway? I mean, if you're working for working for very little money or you're working for free because it's a passion of yours, does that count as part of your working week? It's a it's an impossible mm. thing to that's as impossible as taxing robots and trying to define what a robot actually is isn't it yeah like i think we've got to really uh, take ourselves a bit of a step back from the ideology of capitalism for a moment and say what are we actually achieving as a species what we're achieving as a species ultimately is the capacity to exploit the energy that is that was there in the universe long before we even turned up uh and and use that energy to produce uh useful work which is embodied in the commodities we consume the transportation we take advantage of and so on and that's actually fantastic so long as their biosphere can cope with the, the the waste energy we dump into it yeah and if you look with the elon musk and the plan to set up a colony on mars and people like even he actually bozo is in bozos is involved in a project to try to bring back an asteroid into low earth orbit and mine the asteroid which of course is going to involve robotics doing both the collection and the mining uh it's a it's a world it's a bountiful future world and they went to say well Having, how do we keep on developing this capacity to innovate? How do we keep on exploiting that energy we're finding in the universe and making everybody better off? And 
capitalism itself will need to be redefined to make that possible. And let's go about doing the redefinition rather than letting ourselves get caught in our current 19th century ideology, ended up in class warfare, which will be a class warfare between those who own the means of production and those who aren't necessary for the means of production. And that's the ugly future of the, of the Hunger Games we face unless we get this one sorted out. And the satisfaction we're going to get, what is going to drive and motivate us, is going to be the satisfaction of a job well done, is it? It's going to be yeah. a pat on the back, you've done a good job there. Well, in fact, I think I think what actually happens is, and I've seen it in, and actually up in a little town called Trunheim in northern, uh, or mid, <laughs> I'm saying northern uh, Norway, but it goes on about twice as far as I'm up the coast at the moment. But what people get caught up in is is uh, you know, the, the people doing crafts down the road, uh, th- things which are made by hand and which are individually crafted. Um, people people buy them right now as as as, as novelties. Um, I think that sort of community level stuff, people, you know, putting on musical performances, which you you wouldn't want robots, you wouldn't be going to listen to a robot to to perform uh, the Hallelujah Chorus. Um, All this sort of stuff could become what we do with our spare time, but it's still going to be a hell of a challenge because, as I said, we've, we've defined ourselves throughout our entire existence by our work contributing to the to the well-being of the community in which we're in. If the community, if the well-being comes out of the physical productive capability of the machinery we've generated in the first place, we are going to go through some forms of existential crises on that front. Now, in fact, this is going to sound, this is totally over the top here, but maybe the only way forward in that sort of world is the type that type that Musk uh, came out with last week with his plan to colonise Mars. It may be exploration is the only way left forward. Mm, yeah. Take over the universe bit by bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah nobody else has turned up so far, so it's our <laughs> time to start knocking on, on intergalactic doors. That'll keep us busy for a while. All right. In the meantime, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sensing we're going to go through a few years where we are going to keep on looking at uh, underemployment and say what's causing this while uh, companies like Amazon continue to expand, continue to create efficiencies, continue to underemploy the workforce. Um, and, um, you know, and, and economists are left scratching their heads. Yeah. And it's um, at, the, at the moment, if we look at the, the ugly nature of politics around the world, that's going to get worse. And of course, the main thing we face is we're doing all this in the middle of having a serious ecological crunch coming forward to us, including a decline in the energy efficiency uh, that we currently enjoy, what's called the energy return and energy invested, which we might talk about in more detail in another podcast. But that particular crunch is coming our way, and we might actually to reverse this process for a while um, just to be able to convert from one energy source to another. Okay, so, good. Uh, that is a, a good, 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 good... History is not smooth. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And, and yours, as you're saying, our use of, of energy actually is what's... Uh, the, the, the efficiency of that is actually what's driving the economy rather than how we use money. So that is a good yeah. one for another day. Okay, good to talk, Steve. Uh, we'll catch you again. Okay, mate. We are told in our old economics textbooks, of course, that productivity means people are freed up to pursue other jobs when they're uh, retrenched. So why is that not happening? Why is it that unemployed people are? Why, why is an unemployed packer from a warehouse in Leeds replaced by, uh, by a robot uh, not outwriting computer code for the next great automated online venture? Well, maybe because he can't write code. 
and there's no market for another automated online venture. So what does he or she do then? Uh, I do worry that for many, uh, daytime TV could be the answer. And I don't, <laughs> I don't have got a decent answer really to what we would do if we had a universal income. What is going to motivate people? Uh, Steve, you know, thinks that we are perhaps all a little bit more uh, motivated or more noble uh, uh, than you know perhaps many people are. We might have more people disenfranchised. Uh, that's it for this time. We hope to see you again soon for another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.